Okay, hello everyone. I'm Emma Norris, the Director of Research at the Institute for Government, and I'm chairing today's event on what is at the top of the Prime Minister's in-tray. So after a frenetic summer and what certainly to me felt like a long campaign, later today Liz Truss will become the UK's 56th Prime Minister. She takes on the role facing a frankly inenviable set of crises, the enormous energy prices that continue to rise further still, broader cost of living pressures that are spiralling, backlogs in the NHS pushing it to breaking point just as the annual winter crisis hits, police forces who are reportedly preparing for a surge in crime, um, and the ongoing challenge of Brexit. And that's without mentioning the spectre of her predecessor and the investigation into his possible misleading of Parliament hanging over her. So this morning we're going to look at what this all means for Liz Truss as Prime Minister, what her top priorities should be and how she should approach them, the options for the structure and process and indeed style of her government and how she should approach the role of Prime Minister um, and some of the considerations she'll be making today and in the next 24 hours as she puts together her cabinet. I'm delighted to be joined by a top panel of IFG experts to discuss all this and of course to spend lots of time taking your questions. We've got Hannah White, um, the acting director of the Institute, who's going to start um, with a kind of outline of the challenges facing trusts and how she should approach them. We've got Gemma Tetlow, um, joining us remotely from Singapore, um, our chief economist, who's going to be assessing the economic outlook for trusts. We've got Nick Davies, who leads our work on public services. Um, he'll be talking to us about the pressures facing public services and what looks like a very difficult winter. Alex Thomas, who leads our work on the civil service, who'll be looking at the options for civil service reform. And last but not least, Tim Durrant, who leads our work um, on ministers and on standards in government. So he has been very busy in the last year. Um, he'll be looking at where next on the standards scandal and um, the key choices for trust as she puts together her government. So we're going to start with opening remarks from the panel. And um, we'll then have a kind of brief discussion um, amongst ourselves uh, for you to listen in. And then I'll make sure I leave lots of time for audience questions, as I know we're packed in person um, and online today. So if you have a question, if you're in the audience, um, there'll be a mic going around when we get to that bit of uh, the discussion. So um, you can pick your hand up then. If you're online, please do submit questions. We've got Slido working here. Um, submit them any time from now. Getting them in sooner rather than later is great. Um, and I'll make sure I take a good mix from the live audience um, and those coming in online. We'll be tweeting um, throughout the event using the hashtag IFGNewPM. Um, I think that leaves nothing to kick off. Hannah, do you want to start by telling us what is and what should be top of the Prime Minister's in-tray? Thank you very much, Emma, and uh, welcome, everyone, to the Institute for Government. Um, so I think Liz Truss put an enormous emphasis in her leadership campaign on delivery, and she's absolutely right that that is what the country is now looking for. They don't want sound bites. They want to know what she's going to do. And I think that her, what, what she's going to need to do straight away is to prioritise and to set herself up to deliver. Um, when you think about it, over the course of the leadership campaign, she's made a lot of commitments. She's made over 150 commitments, I think, one newspaper counted. There's no way she can deliver all that, particularly not in the next two years. Uh, and she was quite uh, clear to put down a marker, I think, in her valedictory remarks after she accepted the uh, leadership of the Conservative Party yesterday that she uh, sees the next election being in 2024. So, she's going to have to strike a balance. She's going to have to strike a balance between the things she told the Conservative selectorate that she would do and the things that she now knows that the British public will want her to deliver, and those are not necessarily the same things. Um, she will need to strike a balance between what she ideally would like to do and what she can get her MPs in Parliament to do. 
and we know that she was not the first choice of, of those MPs, uh, and uh, nor was her uh, majority among Conservative members as high as her two predecessors. So she's, she's starting from a, a slightly weaker position in that sense. Um, she'll also have to balance between short and long-term priorities. Obviously, she wants to show that she can deliver before the next election, but a lot of the things she could choose to do in the next uh, couple of weeks and the next few months will have longer-term uh, uh, repercussions. So she needs to prioritise, and I would argue she needs to be honest about the choices that she's making. I think cakeism is no longer... Uh, something that's going to wash. It's increasingly evident to the British public that you can't have your cake and eat it. Um, so she's going to have to be clear on that. And then my second point, I think she needs to set herself up to deliver. Uh, she can't, though she might wish to, push through all her priorities by, by sheer force of will. We're going to start to see how she sets herself up over the course of today and tomorrow and the remainder of the, of the week with her cabinet choices, does she choose um, to put people who can really deliver into the key departments, the key uh, secretaries of state, which will signal her priorities? How does she balance energy, youth, enthusiasm, loyalty with experience? And I think that's going to be really important for her if she wants to deliver. We've also seen a number of comments from her about sort of scepticism about experts and a, and a wish to uh, sort of challenge orthodoxies. I think she's, that's you know, a, a really good thing to have a questioning uh, policymaker. On the other hand, she needs to be careful. Lots of these institutions and experts are there to provide support to people who are governing. They provide useful information. They provide analysis. She mustn't just throw that all out the window. She needs to use it judiciously to support her decision making. And then she said, we've heard reports in the newspaper, she's going to strip number 10 right back. She thinks number 10 is too big. Um, again, I would, I would prescribe caution on that front. It may be a little too big. Maybe, maybe she does want to make some cuts. But successive prime ministers have made the mistake of stripping back number 10, removing functions, which they subsequently realise they did need, and they have to spend time building those back up. So she needs to be careful about that. Ultimately, I think... What she's got to realise is that surviving as a government is not uh, delivering good government. She's got to do more than that. And if she wants to win her own mandate in 2024, she's got to show the British public that she, she can deliver. Thank you, Hannah. Gemma, I'm going to come to you next. The obvious first challenge facing trust is formulating a response um, to rising inflation, to the soaring energy crisis. Um, tell us in more detail about the kind of context that trust faces and also what you make of the options that she's outlined so far. I think you're exactly right that whatever trusts hopes for her premiership, it's likely to be dominated by the economic problems that she faces. And I mean, arguably, she probably comes into the worst economic position, perhaps for any new prime minister since Margaret Thatcher in the late 1970s. And just to give a sense of that, the latest forecast from the Bank of England suggests that inflation will exceed 13% next month. I mean, there's just levels we've not been used to at all in recent decades. And if the latest energy price forecasts are correct, could actually go even higher, uh, kind of depending on exactly what we actually see in terms of what they do on energy price caps and the like that we've heard talked about this week. Um, because of those high energy prices, the economy is expected to enter recession at the end of this year and to contract by something like one and a half to two percent over the next 12 months. Um, that economic slowdown is expected to result in higher unemployment and taking that all together, we're expecting to see a real 
big squeeze on household incomes, which the Bank of England forecast suggests could decline by about 4% in real terms over this year and next, which would be the biggest squeeze on household incomes that we've seen probably since at least the end of the Second World War when we have comparable data. So that's the sort of real immediate economic challenge this government is coming into. And in some ways, the nature of the economic problems actually also affects what the government can and should do and perhaps makes it a bit more challenging than some of the more recent recessions that we've seen. So in recent recessions in the UK, the issue has been a shortfall of private sector demand. That's what we saw during the global financial crisis. It's what happened in the early 1990s. And in response to that, governments can and did to an extent step in with sort of fiscal stimulus measures using government spending to sort of prop up the private sector um, and cushion some of that impact of recession. But actually what we've got at the moment is almost the reverse of that situation. The, the problems are being caused by the supply side, the high energy prices um, fueled by Russia's war in Ukraine are putting a drag on the productive capacity of the UK economy. So if anything, the problem we have now is that actually demand is sort of running up against the supply capacity. That's risking temporary spikes in energy prices leading to much more widespread, more permanent high inflation. Therefore, the Bank of England's raising interest rates to try and head that off. Um, but that does mean that in that environment, there's a danger that big fiscal stimulus measures um, might either lead to further inflationary problems or at the very least may lead the Bank of England to tighten monetary policy further. So the immediate challenge for the government is to decide how to respond to those economic problems, kind of providing some help to businesses and households, but at the same time not creating deeper, longer-term problems. Uh, the economic platform that Truss ran on, at least in the early days of her campaign, seemed to be based on a desire for sort of smaller state, lower tax, less regulation. And some of the specific campaign promises she had, particularly the things like the corporation tax cut and the cut to national insurance contributions, um, were uh, things that were sort of consistent with that small state, lower tax vision. Um, but I think some of the other things that she talked about don't completely line up with that. Particularly, I guess I point to her desire to have more defence spending that could, in theory, be consistent with lower taxes, but only if you were willing to scale back some of the other functions of the state. And I don't think we've seen that talked about yet. Similarly, um, there's talk that has been sort of yesterday and today about what Trust might now do on energy prices, perhaps capping costs for both households and businesses. That implies a pretty large degree of state intervention in markets. Um, so. The big question for me really is what what do we what is Truss's economic vision? What sorts of economic policies do we really see from her now that she's in power? Um, she certainly during the election campaign um, made a big play of her vision for high growth for the UK, and certainly if she can achieve that, then uh, that would make all of the fiscal arithmetic uh, much more uh, easy to deal with. Um, but I think it's unlikely to be as easy as perhaps it was portrayed to be during the election campaign. In the near term, things are likely to be dominated by the ongoing effects of high energy prices, um, actually slowdown, if not recession, in the UK. Um, and whilst beyond that, there are ways that government policy could help to boost economic growth. Um, and a few recent IFG papers have sort of looked at this topic. It's probably not going to be as simple as simply cutting headline rates of tax in the way that trusts sort of focused on during the campaign.
Thanks, Gemma. And just um, one question I wanted to immediately follow up on. You mentioned what's been briefed overnight, the plan to, or the reported plan to freeze bills. Why would um, Trust go for that plan? What are the benefits versus uh, the continuation of the, of the support package? Yeah, I mean, we've, I think this, this proposal probably comes because the levels of energy bills that are now forecast are so high that we've had numbers coming out in the last few weeks of really quite just, I mean, the kind of mind-bogglingly high levels of energy bills that would have been facing households and some forecasts suggesting that something like two-thirds of households could be could fall into the category of what we'd normally define as being in fuel poverty, spending more than 10% of your income on fuel costs. So I think that probably has really just shifted the environment that Trust is operating in. And similarly, there have been growing concerns about many businesses not being able to pay their energy bills this winter, because a lot of them, a lot of people, are, businesses are flowing off fixed term contracts and facing really enormous increases in their bill costs. So I think there's been a big shift in the environment that we're facing, which perhaps is what has driven this very big change in uh, sort of approach to energy bills. Um, there are definitely pros to the sort of proposal that Trust seems to be coming out with. Um, in particular, it's by capping energy bills for businesses and households in the way that seems to be being proposed. It's a pretty clear message providing some certainty to people uh, about the costs that they'll be facing. Um, and probably uh, sort of compared to a policy where you might perhaps try and target support more closely on those who are most in need. A sort of cap for all is simpler to explain and probably simpler to implement for the government. Um, but, but there are clearly downsides to it as well. It could be enormously expensive. It potentially gives quite a lot of support to businesses and households who aren't in particular extreme need at the moment. Um, and interesting, I guess one thing that will be uh, interesting to see how the government deals with this as a consequence is that by not allowing the price to rise, that obviously means that uh, businesses and households aren't getting the signal to cut back on their energy usage. So there's more of a risk now that we actually might run into energy supply shortages. And during the campaign for leadership, Trust was quite clear that she didn't want the government, didn't feel it was right for the government to be issuing messages to people uh, telling them to cut back on their energy usage, that that was a bit too nanny state. But if she does go for this policy of capping costs, then there will be a greater need for more kind of messaging and thinking about the management of uh, energy supply as well as the cost of it. Brilliant. Thank you, Gemma. Um, I think there are going to be lots more questions firing your way shortly. Um, if the cost of living crisis and the kind of energy crisis are the primary things that Trust is facing, Nick, then the, the secondary crisis is definitely and the NHS and public services more broadly. We've had strikes across the public sector, record backlogs, um, you know, the NHS on the precipice. Tell us more about the state of public services and, and what this means for Trust. So in short, there are a wide range of extremely severe problems across all major public services. Uh, so first, the uh, 2021 uh, spending review settlement, uh, which was relatively generous at the time, is now unlikely to be enough to meet uh, rising inflation, uh, demand whilst also dealing with the after effects of the pandemic. Uh, you know, more than half of uh, spending in most public services is accounted for by staff. Uh, at the spending review, it assumed pay rises of 2 to 3%. Inflation is clearly much higher than that. Uh, and any pay rises above that, even if they're still below inflation, will either mean uh, extra money or require cuts elsewhere in those services. Uh, services are also dealing with the direct effects 
uh, of inflation. Uh, energy and fuel costs tend to account for a, a smaller percentage of public service uh, uh, budgets than they do of household um, budgets, but they also currently um, don't have a cap protecting them from energy costs, for example. Uh, and in some services, particularly uh, in hospitals, there's still kind of ongoing high costs of COVID in enhanced infection control measures. Given all that, we think it's probably only in the police uh, where the additional money going in is likely to be enough to return performance levels to pre-pandemic levels. In all other services, even where money is enough to meet increased demand, it won't be enough to clear backlogs. Which brings me on to my second point, that the uh, backlogs are much worse than they were and also that they're going to be really difficult to tackle. Um, so backlogs in most cases were growing before the pandemic, but have clearly been exacerbated quite badly uh, by it. Um, the most obvious ones uh, in the NHS uh, and in Crown Courts, um, those are kind of at record levels, but actually the headline probably doesn't reflect as bad as it actually is, because there's probably a bit of kind of unmet need that hasn't yet filtered through onto the um, official backlogs. Uh, in some cases, they're not, it's not a, a backlog specifically, it's unmet need, like in uh, schools. Uh, the government just simply hasn't put in enough money, only about a third as much as is needed to deal with the lost learning during the pandemic. But actually, the bigger problem for, in most of these cases is that kind of short-term injections of cash aren't enough. In most cases, there just aren't enough staff to properly deal with the unmet need uh, and backlog. Uh, and that brings me on to my third point, which is staffing problems. So there are long-standing shortages across many professions, be that uh, doctors, nurses, uh, detectives, uh, judges, barristers, teachers of physics, languages, uh, and elsewhere. And those shortages are exacerbated by still higher than pre-COVID um, levels of staff absence, uh, both due to COVID itself, but also um, other conditions. And actually also that the workforces in some cases are quite inexperienced because there's been really high turnover levels uh, in recent years. And obviously those problems with recruitment and retention are all likely to be made worse by below inflation pay offers. And so that just brings me to my final point, which is that performance now in all services is worse than it was on the eve of the pandemic understandably, but actually, in most cases, that pre-pandemic performance was worse than it was in 2010. So performance levels are, are really quite bad. And these problems are systemic. It's not kind of a single problem in a single service. It's that, for example, the whole health and social care system and how services interact with each other is, is broken in many cases. And in large part, that's because public services are suffering from kind of long-term capital um, under investment versus uh, other countries uh, and the private sector. Um, and put simply, frontline staff will find it far harder to see patients or process cases in the courts if they're doing so on old computers running out-of-date software uh, in buildings um, with leaking roofs. Uh, and none of that is going to be quick or easy to fix. Thank you. Alex, I'm going to turn to you now. Um, Trust has been quite vocal on civil service reform throughout the campaign. What do you make of what you've heard so far and how can Trust do better as Prime Minister when it comes to the civil service than her predecessor did? Yeah, thanks, Emma. Interesting. I'll, um, I'll come on to the civil service in a, uh, in a minute, but I was going to draw out as, uh, that as one of sort of three, maybe three and a half uh, points in Trust's in-tray 
uh, from my perspective. The first, and it does relate to the civil service, is the kind of narrow question of how she organises the centre. Um, uh, some discussion about this uh, uh, already over the last uh, couple of days. Uh, there was an intriguing tweet just as we were coming in from Nikki DaCosta, who was um, uh, the head of the legislative team in number 10, about uh, implementing a plan that's been kicking around for uh, the last six months or so, but got put on the back burner after lots of special advisors got angry they might lose their desks in number 10, but of moving the policy unit, the delivery unit, data unit, um, uh, 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 the legislative team out of number 10 physically into the cabinet office. Um, uh, and slimming down number 10, which would fit with quite a lot of what um, Truss has said, to the sort of core business of uh, organisation, the private secretaries, a small group of special advisors, um, and the press team. That would, uh, that would, that would deliver on the, the, the Trust plan to slim down number 10, um, uh, and that would be interesting to see how that affects uh, her government. We could talk in a, uh, in a little bit about what that might mean for the for the Cabinet Office, but I think an interesting question about exactly how she chooses to organise that central machine around her. If that um, a Nikki DaCosta tweet, tweet is, is true, I think that suggests Trust will take that slightly more kind of, you know, organisational view of number 10. It's about order, it's about clarity, it's about communicating what the, serving up decisions to the Prime Minister and communicating the decisions that the Prime Minister's made uh, out to uh, the rest of the machine, rather than the slightly more kind of chaotic approach that that we might have seen um, before. So I think that will be interesting. Her close team, uh, uh, Mark Fulbrook is the uh, uh, guy who's um, been briefed to be her uh, chief of staff. Um, the, the critical thing there, uh, from my point of view, is that there's one political operator in number 10 and one civil servant in number 10 who are in charge of the different sides of the machine so that, um, so that it fits that sort of clear and, um, uh, uh, and, and uh, well-organised um, uh, part of, of government. Um, you touched on civil service reform. I think uh, uh, lots of uh, briefing as well about what might happen to Simon Case, the Cabinet Secretary, so uh, there's an interesting uh, uh, thing to watch there. Um, Sebastian Payne, the FT journalist, when he was on our podcast last week, suggested that there'd be a sort of two-phase approach, and the first 100 days would be getting through the crisis. Simon Case would be there for that, a bit of offer a bit of continuity, but then he might be on his way out. Um, uh, uh, so we'll see if that does or doesn't happen. The suggestion then is that Simon Case might be replaced by James Bowler, um, uh, who is currently the Permanent Secretary at the Department of International Trade, has uh, worked with Liz Truss before, um, but uh, is, uh, has, a, has a very similar CV to, to Simon Case's, both worked in Number 10 um, uh, uh, in the past, um, uh, have both um, kind of been around Whitehall, so would be in that sense another kind of conventional pick. So uh, one signal on the civil service is the, uh, the personality that, uh, that ends up um, in charge of it. I think on the civil service reform questions, it will be interesting to see the tone that Truss uh, takes, uh, as Hannah said, focus on delivery, delivery, delivery. If she wants to do that, then um, she's going to need to find a way to get the machine on side and to use the machine. Absolutely nothing wrong with her pursuing a smaller state, uh, a smaller civil service, um, uh, and to uh, try and squeeze more efficiency uh, out of the civil service. And goodness knows we talk about it enough here about how you might make the civil service more uh, efficient, more effective, improve the skills of um, civil servants, but she'd be well advised to drop some of the uh, more sort of antagonistic, superficial stuff. Um, she might, uh, you know, again, completely um, up to her if she wants to, as she said, stick with the 91,000 
job cuts to the civil service. Um, you know, it's fair enough. That's her sort of democratically uh, uh, elected right, or quasi-democratically elected right, I suppose. Sorry, <laughs> uh, may come back to that. Um, uh, uh, but um, uh, but to do it in a way with a proper workforce plan uh, that properly identifies where the areas of growth of the civil service and retrenchment of the civil service need to come back. How that plays out in the spending review, whether she um, builds on the. Uh, um, mechanics that the government's already uh, got to align its priorities to its resources and if we see a spending review um, play out the next few months I think building the way that the civil service is, um, uh, is, is resourced into that is really important. Third area, um, Owen, to watch um, uh, on personalities again who is appointed in the next uh, 24-48 hours as Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster and Cabinet Office Minister will send a big signal to the machine on that. Third area, uh, I'm the lucky one who uh, uh, said talk about Brexit. Um, so the Northern Ireland Protocol will be, um, uh, the, uh, the Northern Ireland Protocol bill will be coming back for its House of Lords stages over the course of the next uh, couple of months. Uh, Truss has obviously said she'll continue to pursue that. Uh, an uncertain high stakes game will play out over the course of the coming months, but I think the um, uh, ticking clock on that to really watch for is that the deadline for the formation of the Northern Ireland Executive is the 28th of October. So there is a, uh, a backstop, as it were, um, to, um, uh, to uh, what she chooses to do on the Northern Ireland Protocol um, Bill uh, and how she chooses to engage over the course of the uh, uh, coming weeks with the European Union. Final thing on uh, Brexit and Europe is that she's pledged to review all European law, which could be an absolutely enormous distraction for the civil service. Um, you might need 91,000 civil servants just to kind of go through uh, uh, all, the, uh, all the retained European law. So I would advise her certainly to uh, pick her priorities on that and focus on the opportunities around uh, uh, European legislation rather than doing a sort of fairly pointless um, uh, uh, superficial exercise to um, to review the whole uh, canon of law. The, uh, the half a point that I was just going to add, and I don't think we want to dwell on it too much, um, is that if it wasn't already clear after this morning, it certainly is that uh, also in Truss's intray is uh, deflating, isolating, containing uh, her predecessor. And so uh, uh, there'll be um, a question about how she does that and how, as Emma suggested, she plays the, um, uh, the Privileges Committee investigation into Boris Johnson. Which leads us nicely on to Tim. Um, Tim, what, what can Trust do to make a clean break on the standards issue? Is it even possible, given um, the Privileges Committee um, report that's coming? And you're also leading our work on the reshuffle, so perhaps you can briefly say something on the kind of considerations Trust will be making, if there are any left to make, given how well briefed uh, yeah. the reshuffle has been. Indeed. Cool. Thanks, Emma. So, yeah, I, I'll start off by talking about the, the standards question. As, as Alex alluded to, Standards was kind of, or the lack of standards was the key theme, one of the key themes throughout Johnson's premiership, and I think, you know, is what brought, brought, brought his premiership to an end. But it wasn't really discussed in the leadership campaign. Now, perhaps that's for understandable reasons. There was a lot of sort of regret amongst Conservative members about how Johnson was brought down, and, um, and people clearly just wanted to move on. Truss and Sunak also were both very keen to kind of paint their loyalty to Johnson. Um, but it is still an issue. There is um, the parliamentary inquiry into whether or not Johnson misled the House of Commons. There is uh, the Committee on Standards in Public Life made some recommendations last year about how 
uh, standards should be improved and uh, they have some very sort of fairly strong recommendations about what the Prime Minister should do in terms of new advisers and, and greater kind of enforcement of rules uh, among ministers. There's also the Common Standards Committee, which has its uh, investigation or its inquiry uh, looking at the code of conduct for members of parliament and how that should be improved and strengthened. So over the coming weeks and months, there's going to be a, a lot of decisions for the new PM about how she and her team kind of respond to all of these recommendations about standards in Parliament. During the campaign, she said she or she didn't commit to appointing a new ethics advisor to replace Lord Guite, who re uh, resigned earlier this year. Um, and she said, look, it's for the Prime Minister to kind of take the lead on this. I'm the responsible person. I'm the one who, you know, the buck stops with me. Johnson said that throughout his premiership. But... Um, I think it's fair to say he kind of failed to put that into action a lot of the times. His, his approach was to say, yes, I'm responsible, but it's fine. Nobody has broken any rules. I don't see any issues here. I think when Hancock was found to have broken lockdown rules, he said, I consider the matter closed and hoped that it would go away. And it didn't. And so the question for Truss is, if she's going to take on this responsibility herself, is she going to take a different approach to Johnson? Is she going... Because inevitably someone will do something that they shouldn't. There'll be some misbehaviour somewhere. And Truss will have to decide, OK, am I going to try and brush it under the carpet? Am I going to do what Johnson did and say, look, this person is an ally and therefore I don't mind? Or is she going to say, no, I want to lead an ethical government. I want to lead uh, a government where standards are enforced and take a different approach. Um, and I think given what she signalled about not enforcing or not putting in, in place new enforcement structures, it, we are just going to have to wait and see when, when something happens. Um, we can talk more about the parliamentary stuff, but in, in terms of uh, her government formation, obviously, after she has seen the Queen, she will appoint her cabinet. We know, or we think we know, most of uh, the posts already. Tim Shipman got a good list over the weekend. Um, I think the key ones, unsurprisingly, given what people have been talking about, who is the Chancellor, who is the Energy Secretary, uh, Kwasi Kwarteng has already kind of been doing op-ed, setting out his views on, on um, economics. Apparently, Jacob Rees-Mogg, who's tipped for um, energy and business, has been meeting energy companies to talk about what they can do there. So this, this government is kind of already, you know, gearing up. Um, Therese Coffey has been tipped for health secretary. Apparently, she and Trust are very close friends. Uh, we were having a discussion beforehand about there's some rumour or some briefing that Coffey is also going to be deputy prime minister. Unclear as to what exactly that role will entail if she's doing the health secretary job as well. It feels like health secretary in a year of crisis is a full-time job. Um, uh, Deputy Prime Minister, it might just be a kind of uh, ceremonial title, just kind of signalling her seniority and her closeness to the PM. Uh, but we'll, it will be interesting to see what happens there. Um, I think one of the key gaps, uh, picking up on what Alex um, was talking about, we haven't heard about or haven't heard confirmation about, is Northern Ireland Secretary. Over the weekend, there was a lot of discussion about people turning down the job. And you can kind of understand. <laughs> exactly. It's a very tough job. You can understand why. Um, uh, someone pointed out to me that the first um, question session ahead of PMQs on Wednesday will actually be the Northern Ireland Secretary. So it'll be very interesting to see who is answering those questions at 11.30 on Wednesday. Um, uh, the other thing to say about the reshuffle is, well, two other things. One is, in terms of the immediate drama, something will always, something goes wrong, something always goes wrong. Someone will refuse a job or someone's name will fall off the whiteboard. And all the briefing that was uh, bandied about over the weekend 
won't quite capture exactly what happens. So it'll be interesting to see who doesn't make it as well as who does. Um, but then the, the, I think a bigger question is, um, what, what is her approach to kind of party unity? So at her speech yesterday, she talked about you know, governing as a conservative. And Johnson said you know, he knew that she would govern and bring together the party. I think Sunak said he you know, fully supports Truss as prime minister. Um, but how does she actually put that into practice? Is she going to appoint lots of Sunak supporters to a cabinet? It doesn't seem so from the briefing we've seen. Are there going to be Sunak supporters at kind of more middle ranks? Um, and how does she approach the parliamentary party? One of Johnson's big issues was, despite having a majority of 80, he kept nearly losing votes and ultimately lost the support of his party. So how does she kind of maintain those links? Does the reorganisation of number 10 help her plug better into the parliamentary party so that she kind of knows what, what the vibes are, what people are thinking inside the Commons? Um, because it's very easy for a prime minister to kind of get isolated from their, from their troops. And so I think if she does want to win in 2024, ensuring that she can use the majority that she has inherited is going to be a, a big challenge for her. Thanks, Tim. And I'm just going to come straight, straight to you with a follow-up question. I mean, Truss has gone out her way in the last couple of days to Lord Boris Johnson, refer to him as our fr her friend, you know, talk about him in her acceptance speech. But what are the risks for her with not just Johnson, but other so-called big beasts returning to the backbenches? How can she in practice manage that as Prime Minister? Yeah, I think it's, it's going to be interesting, isn't it? I mean, I guess... In, for Johnson, there was a classical reference this morning, of course, um, about a politician who went away farming, but then BBC told us he actually came back after 19 years, I think. So, you know, classic Johnson didn't really answer the question. Um, he's clearly not going to go quietly. He's not... I don't think he's going to do a David Cameron. He's not going to sort of fade into the background for a few years. He's not going to do a Theresa May, I imagine, being a sort of diligent backbench MP who kind of asks <laughs> pointed questions every now and again. Um, I, his, his intention at the moment is to stay in the Commons. I, I would be surprised if he lasts more than a year, I think. It doesn't seem to me like he's very much of a kind of background personality. And I think, you know, he has such a following, he has such a presence in UK politics, he is always going to be able to cause trouble for the, the next PM. Um, other big beasts, I mean, you know, Theresa May, she also issued um, congratulations to Trust, but I would imagine she will have some pointed things to say as well. You know, Trust has aligned herself quite closely with Johnson. May has not always been very supportive of Johnson's government, so I imagine she'll have things to say about what, what Trust does as well, particularly around Northern Ireland, perhaps. Um, and then, the key, I think, you know, I, d I don't know who, how you define a big beast, but Dominic Raab is presumably out of government. Um, uh, Sunak, obviously, not going back in. Questions about people who have worked with Trust, who know what she's like, do they want to make things difficult for her? You assume there's going to be a kind of outbreak of unity at the beginning, but I don't think it'll take long for that to fall apart when the government, you know, if it's paying £100 billion worth of energy bills, that is going to test some Conservative backbenchers' vision of what the government is for. So it's, I, I, I expect, yeah, the, the people talked about the honeymoon period lasting two days or maybe until conference, but it's not going to last long, is it? Thanks, Tim. Um, Hannah, a kind of follow-up for you. Has the way Truss has run her campaign helped or hindered um, her start as Prime Minister? Well, I think the key thing from her point of view is that she is Prime Minister. It's been a, it's been a success from that point of view. Um, but I think she's going to need to make a number of changes now. As I was saying, she's made a lot of commitments, and she's made commitments which she knows will uh, appeal to a particular electorate. She's now got to think about a very different electorate. So prioritisation, I think, will be key. And that clear steer from number 10 via her uh, new cabinet to departments on what, what they should now be focusing on is going to be absolutely key. 
um, because at the moment there are any number of things that the civil service uh, will have been anticipating potentially having to yeah. deliver and they, they need to know exactly what they do need to deliver. I think the other thing, obviously, which is, you know, um, has been characteristic of her campaign, which now makes life difficult for her, very obviously, as, as Gemma was saying, she's been basically governing on the basis of the last OBR, not governing, um, campaigning on the basis of the last OBR uh, forecast, which was in March, which seems a very long time ago now, when they were saying that uh, there would be 30 billion of, of headroom. Uh, she's you know, signaled that she's not necessarily going to ask for a new forecast before she uh, maybe puts forward some quite um, dramatic plans in terms of tax cuts and so on. But she, we can all see, doesn't take uh, being chief economist of the IFG to see that the, the situation has changed. There is no longer 30 billion of headroom. Um, and so having relied on that up to this point as a sort of uh, uh, a basis on which to do her calculations, she's now going to have to to, to switch around. I mean, I, we don't yet know fully what, what her priority is going to be. In her speech yesterday, she, she emphasised tax cuts, energy costs, and the NHS. Um, but we, there's, a, there's a lot more detail that we need to see in terms of, of, of what she's, she's going to do now. Thank you. Alex, um, Johnson's relationship with the civil service was, um, was complicated. Um, Beth, what can trust do to, uh, to try and build a, a, a stronger relationship with the civil service, do you think? Yeah, Johnson's relationship with lots of people is complicated. <laughs> um, uh, I think she will respond, to, sorry, the civil service responds, it's a bit of a kind of civil service cliche, but it is true, the civil service responds to direction. So, um, you know, we've had, it speaks a little bit to what Tim and Hannah were just saying, but we've had, you know, a, an experiment in government where a prime minister travels uh, without a lot of uh, ideological weight. Um, Liz Truss, from what she said and from her career uh, and life so far is going to be a more ideological mm -hmm. prime minister that is not a bad thing for the civil service because actually what where the civil service struggles is where there are competing and unresolved policy priorities that conflict with each other where a prime minister or a senior minister isn't taking a decision so i think one of the things the civil service will be looking to trust for is someone who can uh, resolve um, uh, tensions within policies or disagreements between departments and I think she comes at that with some advantages because she has you know it's it's meandered a little bit over the campaign and obviously she has to play to the politics but she has a clear um, ideological underpinning and I suspect she will develop a fairly clear project um, so the civil service will respond to that beyond that as I said earlier I think um, yes, you know, change at the top. The, the, the cabinet secretary, the head of the civil service, senior permanent secretaries need to have the confidence of the prime minister. So let's not be too po-faced about, uh, you know, the purity of, um, uh, of civil service appointments. Uh, Trust and her senior ministers need civil service leaders around them in whom they have confidence. But equally, rapid chopping and changing, the sort of assumption that seemed to grow up that Simon Case and Tom Scholar would just be out uh, I think is unhealthy because that suggests that there is an impermanence to a permanent civil service and that in order to maintain your job as a senior public servant you need to get on uh, in a sort of personal way with, um, uh, with, with uh, the Prime Minister. So I think that's kind of worrying but a bit of a change there. And then um, uh, by all means look to, I mean, develop, build on the existing proper programmes of civil service and government reform rather than tossing out fairly 
uh, ill thought through um, uh, uh, sort of superficial statements about cutting the civil service or uh, uh, civil servants um, uh, getting you know back to their desks after the pandemic. I think all of that just felt it felt unproductive uh, to the civil service. It felt um, uh, it, it, it felt like it, it wasn't really uh, uh, designed with a kind of clear aim of better government in mind. So absolutely reform, slim down if you want, make the civil service more uh, efficient, but do it uh, to a plan and with a kind of clear objective. Thank you. Um, Nick, some of the, I mean, lots of the challenges that you outlined in, in public services have very deep roots, um, for instance, the kind of staffing crisis. Given that, is there anything that a prime minister can do right now to make a difference to those challenges? So look, there are, there are some things that you can do. So I mean, if we're talking about the NHS, um, you know, what could they do to reduce demands uh, over the winter? Uh, you could, for example, have a kind of early and widespread uh, kind of revaccination campaign on COVID uh, and flu. That's obviously going to have kind of short-term capacity implications for who delivers it, but kind of over the peak Christmas period, it could reduce demand, particularly uh, in A&E. Uh, there are also some kind of short-term things that you can do to uh, increase capacity. Uh, so for examples, because of the way the uh, NHS pension scheme uh, interacts with uh, taxation of pensions. For a lot of senior doctors, it actually costs them tens of thousands of pounds if they want to work beyond the age of 60, which clearly has fairly catastrophic implications for retention of your most experienced clinicians. And there was a similar problem with judges uh, that the government previously fixed a few years ago, and it could do the same um, with doctors. I think kind of the, uh, the bigger problem there is there are kind of short-term things that you could do that inevitably are probably going to cost um, some money. You know, you could put more money into to social care that would raise wages, which might mean you deal with some of the staff shortages, which might mean that it's then easier to discharge people from hospital, etc. But actually the sort of even the medium and long-term efficiencies that Trust is clearly interested in also require investment in things like you know, IT, equipment, buildings, actually having a workforce uh, plan, which the previous government was not very keen on. And you know, that, again, is going to take time and investment. Yeah, thanks, Nick. Um, Gemma, I was going to come to you, but I can see Penny hovering with their microphone telling me that it's time to go to audience questions. I'm sure we're going to ask about economic orthodoxy, tax cuts. I'm sure lots of it's going to be on economic questions, so um, it'll come in shortly. Penny's got the mic. Um, can you put your hand up if you've got questions? Um, and when asking your question, can you let us know who you are and where you're from? And could I plead for it to actually be a question rather than a comment, um, given that we've got relatively limited time? Okay, we're going to start here. Um, We'll start from the City of London Corporation. Uh, free bills were, free new bills were meant to have their second readings this week. How does the new Prime Minister and the House of Lords deal with the existing legislative agenda? Yeah, thank you. But I'm going to say a couple of questions at a time, so we'll go here next. Hello, my name is David Olawale Ayunde, and I work in the uh, security and customer service sector. My question today is, how will the government get round to the continued transport uh, strikes, which is um, putting our country um, in chaos at the moment? Great, thank you. And then we'll just... I'm Tony Travers from the London School of Economics. Uh, two things, really. 
I was intrigued to see that Mel Stride, the chair of the Treasury Committee, has written to the OBR asking for it to publish a detailed deconstruction of whatever the government's about to do, whether or not it's a budget. Uh, so Gemma, perhaps, uh, I'd be interested to see what you make of the, that manoeuvring, that sort of tactical manoeuvring. Uh, and second, um, the new Prime Minister is committed to, to quote an old uh, previous Prime Minister, to roll back the frontiers of the state, to reduce the size of the state. Given that the state has not really recovered from the austerity of 2010 to 2015, which parts of the state do you think would be most easily cut furthest to achieve this? Thank you. Um, Hannah, Tim, do you want to start with the um, legislation question? Yes. So, I mean, I think that the signal we've had from Liz Truss is that she uh, intends to continue to deliver against the manifesto on, on which the Conservatives were elected in 2019. But, and, and that includes legislation which is underway, as you say, through, through the Houses of Parliament. Um, I think that it will be a clear signal of her priorities how she starts to deal with that legislative burden because uh, there were a lot of bills in the last um, Queen's speech, I think it was 38 or something like that, and some of those clearly will no longer be a priority for her and she may have new things that she wants to do which uh, require new legislation. Obviously, that will have to be instructed and drafted uh, before it can be brought in. But I would uh, expect there to be some reprioritisation, uh, also depending on where bills are as they're going through uh, Parliament. Uh, maybe some, some significant um, amendments uh, to the things which are already there as vehicles, and in some ways it would be easier for the government uh, if there's still sort of parliamentary time and in the process to, to change some of the stuff that's already going through uh, rather than uh, have to introduce new legislation. But I, I, I would anticipate it will also have that there will be a bearing from who she puts into different jobs. So I think that will, you know, for example, the online harms bill certainly divided uh, the leadership candidates. Uh, so her choices about who she puts into, into DCMS, for example, will be shaped by what she knows of, of uh, different people's views on that legislation and what she wants to happen to it. Um, so I, I think it will be, in terms of individual bits of legislation that people are uh, interested in, who goes into those departments will give you a bit of a signal about how it's going to go forward. And the really interesting one, of course, is the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, as Alex was saying. Thank you. Um, Nick, transport strikes. <laughs> <laughs> um, Look, I think it's the case, as with many services, that there are clearly, and not unreasonably, demands for much higher uh, pay offers um, than the government or uh, its agencies, uh, or in this case, train operating companies, are willing um, to offer. It's, it's, it's going to be really difficult, you know, even um, higher than anticipated but still below inflation is going to leave people very annoyed and worse off than they were before. I think it's just a question of how many, what other options uh, people have in terms of looking, looking for work. You know, the public sector did reasonably well relatively during the pandemic uh, in that, you know, a job uh, as a teacher, 
for example, was safe, you were unlikely to lose it during the uh, pandemic, and that did help with recruitment and retention. But we've seen over the last year that those kind of advantages have unwound a bit, uh, particularly as pay has increased quicker in the private sector. I wonder if I could just go on for that to the kind of where could you cut uh, public sector staff? I, I, you know, there are no easy options. I mean, there are some areas where staff there are more staff now than there were in 2010. For example, there are more uh, children's social workers. Uh, the NHS workforce is actually bigger. But in both cases, demand has increased uh, even faster than those workforces. There are other workforces like uh, prisons and the police where the number of staff has increased pretty rapidly uh, in the last few years, though it's still quite a long way below 2010, so you could cut there. But again, given the kind of levels of violence in prison, the anticipated increase in the prison population in, in coming years, or indeed for the police looking at the charging rates, you'd be, I think, a fairly brave Conservative Prime Minister to think that the answer was to, to cut the number of the police. So I don't think there are any good options. Would anybody else on the panel like to nominate the parts of the state that are part of I mean, this is a cop-out, obviously, because I'm not sure there is a way of answering this question, which isn't slightly a cop-out. But uh, rather than saying where it should be cut, I'll say what I think will happen, um, uh, which uh, is that uh, there could be quite an interesting sort of uh, repositioning of the way the state spends money if trust <coughs> means what she says about defence. I think if we shift to a 3% over the course of the next five, eight years to a 3% um, uh, of GDP being spent on defence, there are very good arguments for that, you know, clearly, um, uh, given the changed geopolitical situation. But that has the potential to uh, rebalance uh, where money goes in the same way that under David Cameron's government, the ring fences around health and education changed the way that money flowed within the uh, system. Um, but as Nick said, those big public services do have a way of sucking up uh, the resources. So I think that's going to come to a crunch, which goes to the kind of what will happen point. Um, there will no doubt be some totemic things that the government will not do or that um, it will make kind of great play at, uh, at, at abandoning. Uh, uh, but they're not going to touch the sides in terms of uh, where the money goes, so we will end up in a you know five percent, ten percent, twenty percent round, not just in Whitehall Civil Service, but and Tony to your you know area of great expertise to local government. Uh, so I think we we will see a um, uh, you know we'll see a, a, a squeeze, we'll see a sort of austerity style um, squeeze in public services. Um, the you know the one thing that can be said for that is it's almost the only way that the Treasury can really make meaningful uh, cuts in budgets. But of course, it then has the consequence of not, um, you know, not really addressing some of the trade-offs. So individual departments are taking their own individual decisions um, uh, about how to make those efficiencies, which is not always the sort of best way of doing it. So the, you know, the the, the, the starving resources from local government uh, over the last ten years might be one example of that. Uh, the the alternative might be to then raise revenue in, in in different ways. But that's my sort of effort. Thank you, Gemma. I'm going to come to you on um, Tony's question on the OBR. Sure. Um, perhaps I'll just start with kind of the substance of what the Treasury Select Committee was asking for, which is that the Liz Truss, if she's going to do permanent 
tax cuts or permanent spending changes asks for the OBR to update its forecasts. And as Hannah said, quite a lot has changed since March. And it's very likely that those forecasts and particularly the amount of fiscal headroom in them would be a lot worse now than it was back in March. So um, my view is that the ask of the Treasury Select Committee is right, that if trusts is going to make big tax changes, then it would be right to do that with full information about what the economic outlook and what the fiscal outlook now looks like. So that's the kind of substance. And to be honest, I'm not even sure I understand the politics of not asking for that updated forecast, because even if she doesn't ask for it now, which might make it easier to push through uh, sort of things that cost the exchequer money, um, she's going to have to ask for those updated forecasts at some point. The OBR has to produce two forecasts between now and next March. So you don't delay the information very much by not doing it now. So that's the sort of the substance of it. But um, Tony's question is an interesting one on the kind of what's the political positioning here. I mean, I, for me, I think there's kind of two things it reveal. One is we've quite often seen chairs of the Treasury Select Committee use that position as a kind of quite influential voice on fiscal policy, non-government voice on fiscal policy. So I think it's quite interesting to see Mel Stride using that, particularly as a sort of former financial secretary to the Treasury. Maybe this is setting up a sort of potentially vocal voice of slight opposition to the new government. Um, so it'd be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, I think it's also interesting to see how the OBR have reacted to this, because they've been quite clear wanting to go on record with the fact that they have produced a forecast, they have been working on this over the summer and making clear that they would be in a position to give that to the new Chancellor ahead of announcements in September. So sort of um, in a in the gentlest possible OBR way, pushing back against the trust camp suggestion that one of the reasons they wouldn't go to the OBR for a new forecast was that there wouldn't be enough time for them to produce that for them. They would need 10 weeks. They want to move more quickly than that. The OBR have quite sort of clearly publicly pushed back against that suggestion. Thanks, Gemma. I'm going to take a few questions um, from online now. Tim, one I'm going to start um, with you on. What circumstances do you think might lead to a general election earlier than 2024? So I think about, so Theresa May, I think, said she wouldn't go for a general election and then did. I'm not sure what Johnson said, but Theresa May had a big poll bounce, right? She triggered Article 50. She had Jeremy Corbyn as the opposition leader. She saw the polls and she thought now is the time to go for it. And obviously that didn't work out for her. I just cannot see anything like that happening. You know, trust, we've, we've been talking for the last 40, 45 minutes about what a difficult time Trust is going to have as Prime Minister. She, she's not riding any kind of wave of, of good news. Um, and, and the opposition have been leading in polls for six months or so. So she might get a little bounce as, as she takes over um, and people sort of see the change from Johnson. Um, but there's a big gap to go to close the gap with Labour. There's a big way to go to close the gap. And um, she's got so, much other thing, so many other things to be thinking about. I just don't see what what she would gain from it. As Hannah said, she was very clear yesterday. She mentioned 2024 as, you know, this is my target. We are going to, you know, work towards winning that election. Um, she's not in the position that Theresa May was in with the small majority. She's got a big majority. If she can work with her party, she's, there's no need for her to do it. Yeah. Well, and the other thing on, on Theresa May, um, I was Jeremy Hayward's uh, principal secretary at the time, and uh, it was a very interesting uh, moment. But, um, uh, 
the thing that we, one of the things that was really driving her as well as the politics was the timetable around the Brexit negotiations. She really thought she needed those extra couple of years to take her to 2022 um, uh, in order to, to resolve that. So that was a powerful driver. I don't I agree with you, Tim. I don't see the same thing happening here. Two related questions um, from online. So what does levelling up mean to a trust government? What might it mean to a trust government? And what does trust need to do to hold the red wall? Who wants to come in first on that? Gemma? I mean, I can start a bit on the sort of what does it mean economically. Um, it was quite notable in the campaign there wasn't really much mention of levelling up from trust to the extent that she and the, her likely new Chancellor, Kwasi Kwarteng, were talking about economic growth in the campaign. They were focusing on sort of boosting growth and productivity and saying they weren't so interested in redistribution questions, that it wasn't about redistributing. It's much more about the size of the pie. So that does in a way suggest sort of downplaying of levelling up if they're less concerned about the distribution of economic activity across the country. Having said that, um, to the extent that one of the big problems of growth in the UK has been certain parts of the country having persistently poor performance, then actually one way of boosting overall growth would be to worry about and focus on boosting growth in those left behind areas. So I, I think it remains to be seen. It, we haven't seen a lot of talk about it. It's not necessarily inconsistent with the objectives they've said they have. Thank you. Nick? Just on uh, public services, I think, you know, people are are going to notice the quality of their public services. They're going to notice if they can't get a GP appointment, even if they call at 8am. They're going to notice if they are waiting months and even years uh, for kind of elective care that they critically need. Um, we've just uh, returned to school and you know, my own primary school in a relatively prosperous area, they can't afford pens and pencils and are asking parents for that money. So, you know, people are going to notice that type of thing. And, you know, education and health have been big drivers of votes in previous elections and I, I can't see the next election being any different. And on the, I mean, on the Red Wall, we're not political scientists, I should say, so we, we you know, approach that question with trepidation. But I think uh, there is something, Trussie's electoral coalition is going to be different to Johnson's. Um, she's got different qualities, different underpinnings. But I wonder a bit at the moment about whether we're in a kind of, let's focus on this subset of voters or let's, let's focus on that subset of voters. Actually, the state of the polls suggests that Truss's main job uh, over the next period is to uh, sort of lift the standing of the Conservative Party as a whole rather than sort of sub-segmenting um, uh, the electorate too much. That might be heresy for you know, some of our friends and colleagues who hmm. uh, study these things more than, than we do, but that would be my instinct. Thanks, Alex. OK, I'm going to do one last round of audience questions, um, starting over here. Thanks. Chris Waterman, parliamentary researcher and uh, thermal underwear manufacturer. That was a joke. Um, I nearly missed the pastries because I was listening to Boris, who was ridiculous at 7.30. We've heard a fairly sublime analysis here. I don't know whether we'll swing back this afternoon. What I would like the Institute for Government to do is to create some sort of spreadsheet so that for each of the policy areas you've identified, you are looking at the impact on the rich, the middle class, and the poor. Because I think levelling up, the up is going to be 
the people already up, and I think it's the the, the vulnerable people who will really need protecting. And I think that is a role for the IOG. Thank you very much. We've got one here and then one here. Um, I'll try and keep it quick. I was going to say it's also colder in the north, so I'm expecting um, that might yeah, play a part in levelling up policy. Um, climate change and net zero hasn't come up at all in the campaign. It felt like it was dropped in 2019 for the COVID crisis. Like, there was a lot of talk about that being the climate change budget year. Um, it also feels like it's big in geopolitics at the moment. Focusing on defence feels quite old-fashioned. It is a comment, but I just wonder if anyone's got any thoughts on that. Thank you very much, Andrew Edwards. I've got a number of non-executive directorships. I just wanted to say that Theresa Villas on Women's Hour yesterday volunteered to go back as the Northern Ireland Secretary when she was talking to Emma Barnett. So she did put in a bid to be Northern Ireland Secretary. I just wanted to go back to, again, the general election. You know, wouldn't you think that you would do a Harold Wilson, February 74, give everybody a 32% raise and go for the election in October 74? Macmillan said... It's events, dear boy, events. The longer the government goes towards the date of 2024, the more it's at mercy of events. Really, shouldn't it, if you're spending 100 billion by Friday, you know, get some gain from that? Then I'll take one more. Here. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, Sharon Darcy, I work on sustainability issues. Do you think this government will have a different relationship with business? Boris obviously found that difficult. Are we going to see a change? I'm going to start with the question on business, actually. Gemma, um, do you think the relationship with business will be different? Um, so in terms of what we've seen from Truss, I'm not sure I know about her approach to business yet, but the big thing that she's clearly been announcing on sort of day one is a huge intervention in energy prices, which will help businesses, um, but also will require her to work pretty closely with any businesses operating in the energy sector to provide clarity for them about what the future of that market is going to be and provide clarity about incentives for investment. Um, so to the, the other net zero points that people have been raising, we do need uh, businesses to continue investing in more non-fossil fuel energy generation capacity. So I think the sorts of policies that she's now talking about doing will require close working with business and giving clear steers about what the business environment and what government policy is going to be doing for different types of businesses. Thank you. And the question of um, net zero, who wants to come in on that? I mean, Alex? I, I mean, I completely agree with you that it didn't feature and should have done. But also, uh, I think Gemma touched on this earlier, if we do have a big uh, uh, support for um, uh, on energy prices, that might disincentivise some of the things that people uh, could and should be doing around energy efficiency. So there's a, um, one of the questions with, for net zero and the climate for me is how, you, uh, how this sort of uh, multi-generational global mission uh, uh, is presented through the politics of the day and the politics of the moment to maintain public support for it. Uh, and it seems to me that energy efficiency is a big part of that and, um, uh, uh, and uh, broadening the supply of, um, uh, of, of energy, as, um, uh, as, as, as Gemma was saying. So uh, I, I think if I'm, you know, on the politics of it, you'd, you'd, you'd play that side up um, for, the, for the moment. Um, uh, it will be interesting to see, and it's, you know, it's, it's not going to go away. 
and Hannah, um, another question about going going early um, on the general election. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting one, and obviously it's always the decision of the moment when the polls are uh, in, a, in a certain position, and 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 they just have to decide to go for it or not. Um, I think, she, as I say, she clearly tried to put the suggestion of an early election to bed, as you would, <laughs> even if you weren't were thinking of going going for an early to try to. Uh, both prevent endless speculation and not make it look like you bottled it if you've signalled, um, as Gordon Brown found out. Um, I mean, my suspicion is that, like most politicians, she will, um, she, you know, she has great self-belief and will hope that something will turn up. You know, it doesn't. It's not looking good, as you say. Events will pile in on her. Uh, but I mean, I guess one thing she has in her favour is that ex expectations are relatively low. I think I saw polling that. 12% uh, of the population think she's going to be a good prime minister. You know, actually, she will feel that now that she's actually got her um, her opportunity to to govern, that she can do things differently to her predecessors. That's kind of what all prime ministers have to have to believe right when they come in. Um, and I think she wants to have a go at the job. So I think the big risk of going early is that you you lose the election straight away and you haven't even had your go. So that's why my betting is that it is going to be 2024. I'm going to finish with a question that's come in from Slido, um, which was, what three things would you want this government to do to show that it believes in an effective government, the IFG strapline? Mm -hmm. I don't think we have time for three things each, but what's the one thing that you'd like to see from this government that shows it? It's serious about effective government. Tim, I'm going to go around this way, so I'm going to <laughs> okay. start with you. Thanks, Emma. Um, I think, to go back to my hobby horse of the last 18 months, I think she has to show that she believes that ministers should be held to standards. She has to show that if people make mistakes, they should be held accountable for that. That doesn't mean firing people left, right and centre, but showing that she takes this issue seriously. I'm also conscious that we didn't answer the question about whether we were going to set up a spreadsheet about all of this. <laughs> you can build that one in now. <laughs> um, where, you know, I think the, the, the interesting, uh, the really interesting thing that Truss said in her first, um, well, her, her prospective uh, interview on, on Sunday with Laura Koonsberg was, uh, you know, that she wasn't actually that bothered about redistribution and fairness. And I, I think it's really interesting to see how that very bold political position plays out in terms of actual policy choices and whether it ends up being sustainable when um, uh, the, the winter draws in and, and the tabloid newspapers are full of stories of, of people in destitution. Um, uh, and what, in terms of effective government, I mean, I think my, ma my main um, advice, and, and this is, uh, you know, this is always a, a tricky thing politically, but is, is don't needlessly junk stuff, which is actually working fine. It's always really tempting to signal change to show that you're a new broom, you're going to do things differently. I'm thinking here, for example, of, you know, boring but important to the IFG things like how performance is managed in Whitehall. Yeah. You know, there are uh, ways of doing that. The last administration has, been, has, has, has made some progress in that area. If you just come in and say, oh, that was the old people, we're going to do it differently, you spend all your time building it back up again. Much better to, to pick up some of these things and, and to tweak them and, and to make them um, work for you and feed your priorities into the system. But don't needlessly chuck stuff away because actually you've only got limited time and you know, if you want to deliver, uh, you, you haven't got time to reinvent all the machinery. Alex, turn. as quickly uh, as possible, please. Yeah, rapidly. So, Truss's supporters would say, I think with some evidence, that she is you know, uh, personally uh, confident about her policy agenda and her intellectual underpinning for that. 
And I think that means she should also be confident about her relationship with the civil service, the wider public service, and the institutions that exist to test, challenge, tease out some of the uh, complexities and difficulties with these things, but then to implement the government's agenda. So I think it was actually a sign of a lack of confidence of the Johnson administration that it was uh, thrashing out around um, you know, the civil service and, uh, and, and uh, oversight bodies and so on. And I think uh, a trust as prime minister should have the confidence to welcome the challenge that can come from those institutions. And then if necessary, to say, no, you're totally wrong. We're going in a different direction. Thank you. Jenna. Uh, my two quick things. Uh, my first one would be on energy issues. So, so far with high energy prices, we've seen the government very much in crisis mode that because the, there's been not enough time to try and reduce energy demand and to tackle how the electricity pricing works in the UK, the government's been very much just trying to throw money at the problem, dealing with the costs facing households and now businesses. But given where energy price forecasts or given that issues of gas supply in Europe are expected to now be a longer term problem, there is an opportunity for the government to start thinking about some of the longer term solutions to that, such as trying to improve energy efficiency of people's homes. There are quite simple interventions that could make a difference for people next winter. Um, so I would like to see the government focusing on some of those longer term solutions that might mean we're less in crisis mode this time next year. Um, then my second thing would be Liz Truss has obviously made quite a big play of a need for more focus on supply side, boosting economic growth and saying that there's not been enough focus on this. Uh, if she's really serious about effective and good government, I would like to see her coming into office asking for the best available evidence on those issues and then acting on that uh, rather than uh, acting on more sort of ideological premises. And Nick? I was going to say the same thing as uh, Hannah, but uh, so I guess just to reiterate, she, Trust has said she wants to focus on delivery, 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 and she's going to find that incredibly difficult if she scraps outcome delivery plans and the performance management framework that has grown up uh, around those. I suppose uh, related to that, if I had to come up with something uh, new, as I said, the kind of workforce is the key constraint for dealing with most of the problems facing public services. So kind of openly and honestly setting out what you think your workforce requirements will be for different services and a plan for how to reach that is really critical. And I guess just on the spreadsheet point, for those interested in a kind of overarching analysis of how well government is performing, yeah. uh, we will be uh, publishing Performance Tracker, which is our analysis of nine key public services at the beginning of November, and then an update to that uh, in the new year ahead of the spring statement as well. Thank you for pleading me that question. <laughs> <laughs> Excellently plugged as well. Um, we're already running over, so I'm going to have to draw the event to a close now. Um, thank you to everybody um, on our panel, uh, especially to Gemma um, for dialing in from Singapore. And um, thank you for all the brilliant questions. And thank you to our audience, both in person and online.